Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. It's mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 169 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thanks for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can start by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel a little bit more generous, $5, receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. If you want to give $10 a month, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And if you donate $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can find out more at www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the ALPL, membership begins at only $22 a year. For more information, find us at www.alpl-astronomy.org. And you can also find us on Facebook. So just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode. And now we continue on with our Historic Observatory series. We're going to Lowell Observatory. Enjoy. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook podcast, and we continue our series of historic observatories. And today we're talking to Kevin Schindler, the uh, public information officer and historian of Lowell Observatory. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Hey, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Now, before we get into the uh, subject matter, why don't you just give everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Uh, my name is Kevin Schindler. I'm the historian and public information officer at Lowell and I've worked here for almost 28 years, um, so I'm no longer a newcomer, I don't think. <laughs> I worked for, um, gosh, for many, many years in the public program, you know, that and managed that program, you know, the tours and telescope viewing and that sort of thing. And then in recent years, I wanted to document some of the stuff that's happened in the past. And so, um, you know, kind of switched gears so I could um, work on some books and, and also work in our marketing department to promote the observatory. Okay. And uh, are, are you originally, originally from Arizona or? No, I grew up in Ohio. Okay. Um, in, um, outside of Cleveland, 20 miles or so. And then I I ended up in Flagstaff via Florida and North Carolina. Okay. All right. And you've written a number of books and articles, I believe. Right. Yeah. One of the things when I was in the public program all those years is um, we have visitors that come, in, come here and want something to remember their visit, but we didn't have much in the gift shop that was Lowell specific. So I wanted mm. to do some books about the observatory and it kind of grew from there. And then, yeah, a lot of um, newspaper and magazine articles, they have a regular column in the local paper, the Arizona Daily Sun. 
Okay. Um, and so, you know, whatever we can do to share the excitement of astronomy with people, um, it, you know, that's what I enjoy doing. Yeah. And uh, I understand you also have a passion for baseball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm a lifelong baseball fan. Okay. Um, and so I try to get to, that's the great thing about being in Arizona. We have spring training. Mm-hmm. And so up here in Flagstaff, we're at 7,000 feet. And by February, we're getting kind of sick of the cold. <laughs> but you could drive two hours south, be in shorts, and watch spring training. It's uh, always so, a lot of fun. I've done yeah, that in the past, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's cool. Now, are you a amateur astronomer? Um, I guess you could say that. I I mean, I growing up, I was interested in fossils. Okay. I in Ohio, I there were fossils all around, so I collected my first one when I was seven, picking blackberries, and I was hooked. And so that was the kind of the first part of my career was working at the Florida Museum of Natural History in Gainesville, Florida, um, in the Inver Paleo Division. Um, but then the last 28 years has been astronomy. So instead of looking down, I look up. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Yeah. The uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Oh, we, yeah. have t- we have ties to Lowell. Uh, uh, Ch- Chick Capen. One of our past uh, Mars. Right, Chick Capen. Yep. Yeah, yeah. He he was uh, in charge of our Mars section for many many years. Yeah, he was a student of Clyde Tombaugh's. Right. And, and um, we have a classic picture of Chick Capen at the twenty-four inch refractor here at the, at the Lowell Observatory, um, kind of mimicking the classic picture of Percival Lowell, our founder, sitting in the chair, his mm-hmm. head backwards, and Chick Capen used to dress up. Um, <laughs> in old clothes kind of as person low when he gave tours um, back before my time here. I never, I don't think I ever met him. I, um, mm. it seems like I exchanged some correspondence with him at one time, but I've heard really good things about him. Now you talk about that classic image, uh, the, the local astronomy club here in Ventura, we took a tour in the early eighties of Lowell observatory. Yes. And we were, we went in the dome for the 24 inch Clark. And we all had our photos taken in the exact same pose that you're talking about in the chair. Oh, right. <laughs> it's pretty wild. Yeah. It's yeah. A, you know, there's a, there's a certain safety issue with getting up on that old chair, mm-hmm. but we're still able to uh, do that every now and again. Nice. And yeah. You have to, especially for, you know, amateur astronomers and those, those kind of in the know with the history, mm-hmm. you want to get that picture. It's really cool. It, it is pretty cool. It's one of my favorites. So. Yeah. Anyway, so why don't we talk about a little, little bit about the history of the observatory, you know, where, how, when it began and how, how it evolved over the years. Sure. Well, it, uh, we had to go back to the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, a fellow named Percival Lowell who came from a wealthy family, um, his, and a well-to-do family in terms of not just money, but, um, they did a lot of important things in, in Percival Lowell's generation itself. Percival was born in 1855. Um, his younger brother, would become president of Harvard for 24 years. Yeah. One miss sister married a relative of Theodore Roosevelt. Another sister won the Pulitzer Prize. And so, you know, <laughs> the family was success, one of the blue blood families of Boston. Uh-huh. And Percival Lowell, he um, he always was interested in astronomy. He went to Harvard, because if you're a Lowell, you went to Harvard. And he studied mathematics. Um, but he And he did a senior thesis on astronomy, but he, he didn't study it per se in college, but he maintained an interest. And after work in the family business um, in the textile mills for eight years, I'm um, doing the finances. And then he spent 10 years overseas, immersing himself in, in Japanese and Korean culture. He came back to the United States 
1893, 1894, you know, was thinking, what's the next step? Hmm. Um, and he decided to build an observatory because, um, again, he always had an interest in astronomy, but um, there was an astronomer named Giovanni Schiaparelli mm-hmm. who um, was retiring because his eyesight was going bad. And Schiaparelli famously um, detected what he called Canali um, and mapped these in, on Mars um, during the really good opposition in 1877. And Percival Lowell decided he wanted to pick up where Schiaparelli left off. And, and Lowell wasn't the only one, but he was one who saw these supposed um, Canali on Mars as evidence of intelligent life. And I think something that I've really realized in recent years is how driven Percival Lowell was to fulfill the expectation that that comes with being a Lowell. His father and his father before him and so on really stressed to the family, if you're a Lowell, you don't rest on laurels, you don't Mm. You know, you know, inherit the money and just run off. You do something important, and so I think Percival Lowell was um, was driven by this. He didn't found the observatory just for the sake of carrying out, you know, observations of the atmosphere of Mars over time or something no. like that. He he wanted to discover, prove that there was intelligent life on Mars, and if he did that, that certainly would do well for the Lowell name. And in fact, when that wasn't panning out, when he was getting a lot of criticism, um, he also started looking for a ninth planet um, that he called Planet X, the theoretical ninth planet. And I think, I think Percival Lowell, he died in 1916. Um, he, he had founded the observatory in 1894, died in 1916. I think he went to his grave unfulfilled because he didn't make the big mark that he was hoping to. But in hindsight, um, he probably did better than he could have expected (laughs) because his um, search for a planet directly led to the discovery of Pluto in 1930. Um, And so much of the research that happened during his time, like Vesto Slipher um, being the first person to detect the expanding nature of the universe. Um, And then in later years, of course, the discovery of Pluto. But years later with um, a proper motion survey, um, detection of Pluto's atmosphere, lots of Pluto research mm-hmm. in later years, um, asteroids, comets, all sorts of research. And and of course, the other side of it is communicating the science. Lowell has, the observatory has a long heritage of sharing science through public programs. Um, Percival Lowell left quite a mark and his name is remembered more now than perhaps if he had just discovered a planet. And mm-hmm. so I think it's, it's uh, sort of interesting when we talk about the early history of the observatory, I'm um, seeing what drove the founder and um, and what resulted from that. Interesting. Now, was the first telescope on the hill the, the Clark? Um, actually, that came a little bit later. Okay. Uh, Percival, Lowell, Percival um, to figure out where to set up a site, he sent an assistant named Andrew Douglas mm-hmm. and um, and lent him a six-inch Clark refractor that Lowell owned. And Douglas took this in what was then Arizona Territory, along with several instruments for evaluating atmospheric conditions. Hmm. And so Douglas's job was to do site testing. And um, again, this is before Arizona was a state, 18 years before Arizona was a state, this is happening. Hmm. And Douglas went to 
several locations around the territory, um, Tombstone, Tucson, Tempe, Prescott, and finally ended up in Flagstaff and decided this was a pretty good location for doing astronomy. And on May 28, 1894, first of Lowell arrived in town um, and, and started viewing the skies. Initially, he had borrowed two telescopes, uh, one from Harvard and one from John Brashear. Uh, those were 12 and 18 inch telescopes. And then after that first year in 1895, um, Lowell ordered his own 24 inch refractor mm -hmm. and that arrived in July, um, 1896. And in fact, they used it in Mexico initially and then brought it back here to Flagstaff in 1897 and it's been sitting here ever since. So when people think about Lowell Observatory, uh, and and if you go to Flagstaff, you see this big white dome, looks like mm -hmm. a big birthday cake on the side of the hill. Um, that's the dome that holds that telescope. That's the telescope most people think of. Right. Um, and so it wasn't technically the first, but certainly the primary one that first of Lowell used. Yeah, it's, it's quite a unique dome. Uh, inside, you have the car tires around the inside that... Yeah, I'm right. Sure it's, it's a, it, you know, it's it's great to view through because how often can you look through a 24 inch refracting right. telescope? Um, but also, I mean, we've had architecture students come in, um, certainly history students, looking at the structure itself because mm -hmm. it's so unique mm -hmm. and it's one big anachronism because <laughs> it was used for research for, you know, half a century um, and more, um, and now it's used for public viewing. We don't do research with it. But, you know, you use it through the years and and they tinkered with it and kept adding things. You know, electricity wasn't original, but it's in there now. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the, the tires from Ford vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what the dome sits on. There's bicycle chains mm -hmm. used for controlling the telescope. It's, and, you know, all this stuff from different eras, it's really, it's really fascinating to look at it. Yeah, I, was, I, I, really, I had an opportunity to use it a couple of times. I was very... Very, very in awe of the instrument itself, knowing its history. Now, yeah. what what other instruments do you have up, up there? Well, for the, I'll start. We we have a couple different locations, three different locations really. Okay. We have the traditional Mars Hill site, mm -hmm. and that's the site a mile west of downtown, and that's where our visitor facility is. That's where the original site of the observatory was. Right. And up here, we have a twenty-four inch Clark refractor that you mentioned. Um, we have a 24-inch plane wave, okay. and we also have um, what's called the Giovanni Open Deck Observatory, which is a it's an entire building that rolls back, and when it opens, you have six different telescopes, mm -hmm. um, ranging from a 32-inch Dobsonian down to a five and a half inch, um, and different types of telescopes are looking at different things, and those are all public telescopes. That's all for our for our public, okay. um, and then we also have on this site. Uh, the telescope used to discover Pluto, the 13-inch astrograph. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have some other smaller telescopes that are actually still periodically used for research, a 21-inch refractor or reflector and a couple other ones. Um, so those are the telescopes on, on this site. Uh, in the late 1950s, as Flagstaff grew and light pollution became an issue, um, we set up a dark sky site when we acquired a 69-inch telescope from Perkins Observatory. And that was reconfigured into a 72-inch. And so um, we just um, sold that to Boston University a couple of years back. So, But that's 
tested our Anderson Mesa site where we have a 42 inch reflector and we're now replacing a couple other telescopes um, for research. And then, and then the third site we have, if we go to the early 2000s, it was, it was time again, if we're gonna you know, maintain ourselves as a state-of-the-art research facility, we needed a bigger, more modern telescope um, than the Perkins and the other ones we had. And so we um, started an effort to build what today is known as the Lowell Discovery Telescope. And that's a 4.3 meter mm. telescope about 40 miles from our main site. So we have the main Mars Hill site, about a dozen miles southeast of that is Anderson Mesa um, with with a suite of, of telescopes. And then another 30 or so miles is is um, the Lowell Discovery Telescope. So the, 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 the LDT, um, which is the Lowell Discovery Telescope, that's our flagship research telescope now, but we still certainly use some of the others for research. Um, you don't always need a Cadillac. <laughs> um, to do certain types of research. True. Um, and then we also, our astronomers use telescopes around the world. You know, some of our astronomers study things like the large Magellanic clouds. He has to go to the Southern Hemisphere. So, you know, we, our astronomers get time on other telescopes and astronomers from other observatories get time on our telescopes. Kind of the nature of right. astronomy and partnerships. Yeah. Now, how is the observatory funded? Is it uh, public or private funding? Um, Lowell, since the beginning, is private. So okay. um, begging, borrowing, stealing, I think that's <laughs> you know what nonprofits do. Um, we, we actually have um, a pretty rugged fundraising department. Um, we, our funding has changed in the last couple of years because of the LDT. Our annual budget went from about $6 million dollars Oh, I don't know, five years ago. And it's I think it's almost tripled that. Oh my. Um, and a lot of that is the cost of operating, you know, state-of-the-art facilities like the LDT. But we have a staff of about 150. And so um, the research is mostly supported by grants that our astronomers write to, you know, National Science Foundation, um, different, you know, different organizations like that, different funding agencies. Um and then we have our public program that before COVID was generating, gosh, more than 100,000 visitors a year were coming. So admissions, gift shop sales, um, if people enjoyed their experience, we have a membership program um, where they you know, have more intimate connection to the observatory. And then we also do a lot of fundraising, writing grants, um, not just for the science, but to support other efforts at the observatory. And in fact, right now we're in the middle of a capital campaign um, we, before COVID, we were clearly outgrowing our visitor facilities, a facility that was designed for 60 to 70,000 visitors a year. We were getting 100,000 mm. plus and the numbers going up. And so um, we, we can now officially say next year um, we're opening our new visitor facility. Oh. It's uh, really an astronomy. Uh, it's really a science center. It's called the, the entire name is the Kemper and Ethel Marley Foundation. Astronomy Discovery Center. Um, but if you hear somebody say ADC, that's what we're talking about. Okay. It's a lot easier to see. But it's a three-story, 40,000-square-foot facility. Oh, my. Um, and it's got a lot of really great features. One of my favorites is a couple hundred-seat, um, gosh, theater, I guess you could say, on the top floor. It's, it's a, we call it an outdoor planetarium. 
it's it's a planetarium with the seats tilted back and you look up, but instead of looking at, you know, um, constellations projected on the ceiling, we're looking at the real thing uh, because Flagstaff has famously dark skies. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the world's first outdoor lighting ordinance was established here in 1958. Mm-hmm. And in 2001, Flagstaff was named the world's first international dark sky city. So, so we're taking advantage of that. Visitors are going to be able to come up sit in these seats and and look at programs featuring the real night sky. The seats are going to be heated oh. because it does get a little chilly up here. Um, but we also have, even when it's snowing or raining, we also have uh, what's called the Universe Theater, which is a 25-foot screen that wraps around something like 160 degrees. Um, and it's going to be an immersive astronomy experience. And so... So it, it, I'm kind of getting on a tangent here, I guess, but no, um, it's that's, that's now. another one of our big fundraising things right now. This this project now is um, with COVID, some of the prices skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. Um, like there was an increase of 300 percent on some of the um, good, some of the materials. Right. And so it's the the cost is now at 53 million. And so our philanthropy team is. They had, they had the original amount raised, and then COVID drove everything up. So they're working on, you know, meeting the difference. And, and so said, we expect that to open late summer, maybe in twenty twenty four or twenty yeah twenty twenty four. That's fantastic. Yeah, I remember the previous visitor center was not all that large. And right, it it you know if we go back, um, since the beginning, our founder Percival Lowell um, really stressed the importance of sharing astronomy with everybody it's not just the purview of scientists but all of humankind can benefit from it uh, we make them co-discoverers and so from the beginning um lobes have returned welcome visitors um and we had a small place where visitors could come mm-hmm. but in the late 1980s new leadership said you know we've got more visitors coming and we also want to want to be a center you know a world leading center for doing astronomy making it accessible to people. So in 1994, which is the centennial of the opening of the observatory, we opened the Steel Visitor Center. Hmm. And that's the one that could accommodate 60 to 70,000 people a year. And that was great, but we've we've outgrown it. And so with this new um, science center, we'll still have the old visitor center that we'll use for, you know, school programs and um, conferences and stuff like that, but this new facility will be really the center of the visitor experience. While still, we'll have the telescopes of the Giovanni Open Deck Observatory, the 24-inch refractor. That'll be that'll still be one of the center points of coming to the observatory. So there's, you know, there's just going to be more to do and more to see. That sounds exciting, boy! I have to make a trip out there when you open that new uh, visitor center. That's yeah, nice. it's going to be it's going to be quite the thing. I mean, we're we have pretty lofty goals to make it the world's destination for mm-hmm. astronomy, you know, for the public. And you know, that comes with a lot of expectation and responsibility, but mm-hmm. you know, we have a this strong heritage of science and we're doing more science here than ever in the past. You know, Lowell has this people remember Lowell because of Percival Lowell's right. you know, canals and the discovery of Pluto and and things like that, but we're doing more science today than ever in the past um, with one of the most powerful telescopes in the world. So it's it's exciting to have that going on and to have a venue for sharing 
the results of that research and just the excitement about astronomy. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, Kevin. What are some of the major science programs going on at the various telescopes up there? Yeah, well, well, um, there's there's several really from the inner solar system going to the outer edges of the universe, and we've got we've we've got a long heritage of asteroid and comet research. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our astronomers, Nick Moskovitz, and um, his colleague Teddy Coretta, for instance, um, they they've both been involved, for instance, in um, the DART mission, and. Yeah. DART is the, the double asteroid redirect test. Um, that was the, you know, several months back, back mm-hmm. in 2022, I guess, um, when when NASA sent a spacecraft and it impacted an asteroid moon with the idea of, of testing the technology to see if, if there was an incoming asteroid that could hit Earth down the road, do we have the technology to deflect it away from us? And so this was the first test of, of one method of doing that. And and um, Nick and Teddy um, were, were involved in a lot because if in order to figure out if you've moved the asteroid or not, or the moon, you have to have a really good idea of exactly where that uh, that moon is and how what its orbit's like. And so they and colleagues used both the Discovery or the Lowell Discovery Telescope as well as the 42-inch to observe. Um, that asteroid system well before the impact and well after, that's still going on now, um, to, to be able to precisely measure the motion. Mm. And so so they, they've done a lot of other asteroid research, but that's something that's been in the public eye um, that people have heard about. Um, there's um, a, a team that studies comets mm-hmm. going back really to Percival Lowell's day and one of the most iconic comet pictures, at least of centuries of, of the 20th century was one of Halley's Comet taken from the observatory here that has um, included in the field of view besides the comet is um, uh, an ast- a um, meteor and the city lights a flagstaff, the planet Venus. It's really an iconic picture. So going back to Lowell's day, we've studied comets and discovered um, many comets and thousands of asteroids that are still being um, named. Um, if we go out the solar system more, we've got scientists studying uh, Mars and, and and water systems on Mars, uh, how water can form on Mars. Um, the outer solar system with ice, icy bodies. Um, Pluto, of course, we have Flagstaff is kind of nicknamed the home of Pluto mm-hmm. because virtually every major discovery has connections to Lowell Observatory or Flagstaff in general. Um, the planet, the moons, the atmosphere, and so on. New Horizons mission. And so there's a long heritage of Pluto research here um, and other icy bodies in the outer solar system. Um, some of our astronomers work with um, a team over at Northern Arizona University, which is right here in town, and they have a cryogenics lab where they can recreate the frigid temperatures in outer space and then compare what they're finding in the lab to observations they actually make you know, in space. And it helps them with modeling and so on. And so that's a really neat project. Um, and then we, we go further out, we have um, several different astronomers studying both binary stars and kind of related to that, um, looking at exoplanets okay. and um, and the types of stars exoplanets can be around, um, not just discovering them, but, but characterizing them. 
And we've got one project um, using the Lowell Discovery Telescope in conjunction with a powerful spectroscope that Yale built called Express that's looking for Earth-sized planets. Um, so there's a there's a wide range of things. Uh, we've you know some of our study, astronomers study galaxies, mm-hmm. um, both their formation and and then in other cases how they impact each other. Um, cannibal galaxies where one slowly consumes another over time. And there's there's really kind of a wide range of research going on here. There's a lot of, a lot of science taking place up there. Right. Fantastic. Now, are, is Lowell Observatory affiliated with any universities in Arizona, or no? Lowell, Lowell is a is a private organization. Okay. The, our founder, Percival Lowell, I think essentially he didn't want to be beholden to anybody. Okay, <laughs> he wanted to be his own boss. Um, and so now we have affiliations. Um, some of our astronomers, for instance, have adjunct positions at the university here, mm-hmm. and we also have partners on the Lowell Discovery Telescope. Um, so we have five partners right now, um, Northern Arizona University, okay. Toledo University, University of Maryland, um, and a couple others. And and um, so they eventually, you know, put in a certain amount of, in, of money and get a certain amount of time on the telescope. Um, and so um, that's, that's an important part of operating the Lowell Discovery Telescope. So we, Lowell has always been a place that, um, you know, are privately operated and privately funded, but we partner with a lot of organizations, whether it's for doing science or for doing um, education and outreach, you know, partnering with local schools or with other attractions and museums around around Northern Arizona. Um, so there's a lot of partnerships and collaborations. And um, Lowell has always been it's always been important for Lowell to be part of community, whether it's mm-hmm. the astronomy research community or the Flagstaff community or informal science education community. Um, we, you know, don't want to be this, you know, snotty nosed people on the side of the hill looking down <laughs> at everybody <laughs> in the ivory towers. We, we, you know, we want to be part of other, of, uh, you know, other organizations we partner. So private, but, but we work well with others. We play well with others. Okay. Now you mentioned outreach. What type of outreach programs do you have? Well, we've got we've got the on-site visitor program. Okay. So people can come from around the world and look through telescopes like the Clark 24-inch refractor um, and go on historic tours and at nighttime look through the telescopes and and um, our educators give laser shows. I mean use laser pointers to point out constellations and such. Uh, we have astronomers who come in um, and and visitors can meet them. During Ask an Astronomer, oh you can walk up and ask astronomer any questions. So we have those programs that are on site. And then we have our school programs. Um, and those are you know, schools that not only visit here, but we also go on the road hmm. and, and visit schools. One of the a kind of a keystone of that effort is a program that's been going on for almost 30 years now. Um, it's it's um, and it, it targets Native American communities, Navajo and Hopi and other um, tribes. And so our scientists or educators will set up where they go out once a month, say, and do lessons um, at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of the year, the students and teachers come to the observatory 
or an overnight. They look through telescopes, they visit our research facility, um, and it's a, a way to inspire um, students and teachers to learn more about astronomy, especially in underserved communities that don't have an observatory in their backyard, for instance. That's very so there's good. A lot, of, a lot of different things. And then, you know, with the, with the virtual world now uh -huh. um, and with, with COVID that kind of made us all change how we do things, you know, one thing that came out of COVID is we developed a lot of virtual programs. And we always wanted to do that, but didn't have, you know, as we say, that we didn't have the bandwidth to do that. But when we were forced to be closed for a while, the observatory leadership um, committed to not laying anybody off. Everybody would still get paid. But for our educators, if they're not doing tours and stuff for the public, what do they do? Well, they created virtual programs. Yeah. And so now we have a suite of those that um, that are accessible free. If you go to Low Observatory's YouTube um, page, you find dozens of, of programs. And um, people can watch them live or can watch them after the fact. So there's a lot of different ways we reach people, both on-site, off-site, as well as around the world with these virtual programs. That's great. That's great. It's good to hear that they're working with the, the natives, too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's good. So what are some of the future plans? You mentioned the visitor center in right. a year, but what else? Well, they, they, yeah, the... the um, the visitor facility, the Astronomy Discovery Center, opens in late summer, early fall, 2024. Mm -hmm. um, and that, there, there's a lot involved with that. I mean, this is a major upgrade, and so that's going to ramp up our staffing just for that effort. Um, and then with the Lowell Discovery Telescope, we're you know the research with that is going really strong, and it's it's such a great instrument because it's it's a it's the, when it was built, it was the fifth largest telescope in the continental U.S., mm. but also it's one of the most powerful in the world because it's so versatile. Um, it can hold, it's got, it's, you know, traditionally, if you have a big research telescope, you might have an instrument like a photometer or a, an imager or something like that. And it, it could take hours to put that instrument on the end of the telescope. And then... Okay, some other scientist wants to use a different instrument to study something else. You know, the telescope's taken down, it takes hours or days to take the old one off, put the new instrument on. Um, with the Lowell Discovery Telescope, it's got what's called an instrument cube that holds five different instruments. And so in the you push a button, and in about 30 seconds, the instrument cube rotates and the light path now goes through a different different instrument, huh. and so so you're, you can you can use five instruments almost simultaneously. So, for instance, if we've got you know a comet like the the, the green comet that mm -hmm. made headlines in you know the last few weeks here, um, you know our astronomers can study it using different instruments almost simultaneously rather than saying okay we've got we'll look at it here at Lowell Observatory who else can look at this and has time on the telescope. And we, you know, while we have time allocated on the telescope, um, we also have the flexibility because it's ours mm -hmm. to respond to last minute um, needs like, oh my gosh, we have this comet, let's, let's observe it. And so there's a lot of flexibility with that. So, so with the, with the Lowell Discovery Telescope, we'll continue that work, 
um, we're looking for another partner um, who wants to to um, be part of that uh, project. Um, and then also um, we continue to develop new instruments um, depending on what our astronomers and, and other astronomers want to do with it. And so there's a lot of uh, excitement about the future of the science here. And then supporting all that, um, we're also look all, all both the research and the on-site visitation. Mm -hmm. We also need to expand our facilities a little bit because you know more visitors, more staff. It means we need you know part of the new visitor facilities, a new parking lot, but we need right. a new machine shop um, because our current machine shop sits right in the middle of what's going to be down the road the center of the visitor experience, um, and so we're going to build a new one and also that's equipped with modern, um, you know, technology. Um, and in the machine shop, our machinists build things like for our telescopes, right? They've built parts that have gone to, into, um, airborne observatories, um, and so on. So, so, you know, part of, part of growth of our mission, um, efforts, which are science and education, um, and you kind of combine those as communicating science. If you distill our mission down to one thing, you could say it's, it's um, communicating science. But in support of all that, we need the infrastructure. So the machine shop and um, we need a new staff building mm. because our staff has grown so much. We're mm. bursting at the seams for office space. So that'll be something down the road also. Fascinating. Wonderful. Okay. Well, Kevin, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think it's, uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot of folks are familiar with Loeb Observatory, especially members of ALPO, mm -hmm. um, you know, probably many have visited here. And it's it's such a unique story because there's the personality of Loeb Observatory, some of the, the distinct discoveries, but then longstanding research that maybe isn't as well known, but is still, you know, important. But you combine that with all the efforts to to share the results and to communicate science. And it's really, you know, it's neat because Lowell is so accessible. Mm -hmm. um, as, you know, as, as observatories go, it's easy to get here. It is. You know, if you want to visit, we're a mile from downtown Flagstaff. Um, and so it's easy to get to. And um, there's a, a, it's a great resource with both our scientists and educators. A lot of, a lot of your group may know folks like Brian Skiff. Yep. Who's been in the field for a long time and is, you know, knows the nice guy better than everybody else combined here, as I'd like to say. And so, and, and you, you look at some of the past people we've had, like Robert Burnham Jr., who wrote his celestial handbook while he was working here. You know, Clyde Tombaugh, who discovered Pluto. Both of them, as well as our founder, were all self-taught astronomers. Yeah. Um, and so, to me, it, it, it's kind of inspirational that, you know, today in general, if you want to if you want your career to do science research, you know, you, you'll probably go to school and get a PhD or whatever, but there's also, you know, like Clay Tombaugh and Robert Burnham and others shown, you can have a career or even just a lifelong passion. If, if you like something, make it happen. And you, you can make it into career if you want. If not, it's a really good um, hobby, if nothing else. But I think Lowell is great for showing, for showing people that, if you have an interest, you can make things happen. Like, you know, Clyde Tombaugh, who was living on a farm with no money. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted a telescope, so he built one out of farm parts lying around the farm. 
he made drawings with that, sent them to this place called Low Observatory, <laughs> and they were so impressed that they hired him. Yeah. And within a within a year, he discovered Pluto. And, and so it's again, it it really Lowell, I think, is a great place. It's it's kind of as as Dave Iker, who's the uh, managing editor of Astronomy Magazine, he calls Lowell America's Observatory. And I think it gets that idea that anybody can come to Lowell and and get something good out of it. You don't have to if you have a PhD and want to do science, that's great, but you don't have to. Mm-hmm. To, to really get something out of it. That's great, Kevin. I really appreciate that. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a great conversation. Well, thanks, Tim. Really great talking with you. And I right. uh, invite you to come and visit anytime. And I'd be glad to show you um, how things are changing um, ever so quickly here at the observatory. <laughs> I will definitely make it a point to get there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank Kevin Schindler from Lowell Observatory for coming on the podcast today. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify, and the podcast is also available on our YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon, where you give up to $35 a month, where you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. With that, I want to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their generous support. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is cometman at cometman.net, or on Twitter at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.